millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Yeah, Dr. Santos here, peds infectious disease doc and researcher. Warthan, ER doc, hiding under the sheets. And John B.U., neurologist extraordinaire at the NIH, also dealing with emerging infectious diseases. So gang, as I'm sure you figured out, we've gathered the whole flight crew together, or at least as many of them as I could round up from quarantine, for an update on coronavirus. We are going to have some fun, but the most important thing is to give you all an update on what's going on and to help convince you that while it's okay to be concerned and scared, there is no need to panic. Let's take that as our starting point. So before we get into the updates, a little bit of fun and a dance break in case anyone on earth hasn't had a chance to hear it yet. Have you have any of my fellow co-hosts been able to watch the TikTok dance challenge for coronavirus? <laughs> I've got catchy. Yeah, I've got the one from Vietnam. I like the one from what is it? Colombia, Ecuador? That one's kind of cute. That like one's that good one too. too. But the one from Vietnam is hot. I'm practicing it at home. <laughs> I've almost got the dance down. We're so close. But here you go. Enjoy the song. The, my favorite part so is that they've managed to choreograph hand washing. This it's, is it's really cute. This is the Macarena I was hoping for, you guys. Yep, I've got to say though. Um, <laughs> 
I do have to say it's a cover, cover of a Vietnamese song, I think called Jealousy, which is also, you know, very insanely weird and cute, uh, especially from a Westerner's perspective. But the reason that the song is so hot is because it was already written and produced, you know, as like a Viet pop song. Serious ups to everybody around the world who's come up with their own dances from their own countries and regions about the coronavirus. But let's begin by getting a brief international update while our NIH employee is still conscious. Mm-hmm. John, you got back from Korea recently where- Just Yesterday. Where they are finally <laughs> starting to see a minor decrease in the incidence of new cases. Um, Actually, what can- it's a pretty, yeah, it's a, they have flattened their curve, if not even more. Um, they've been very successful in doing that, I'd, I'd have to say. And they've been, you know, from the beginning, I think on top of things very well, they ramped up their ability to test. They're able to test over 100,000 cases a day, which is um, probably partly why they have such a low mortality rate of less than 1% for certain, but probably also partly because we have a better idea of exactly how many cases they really do have. And also they've been practicing social distancing. You know, you go outside, everybody's wearing a mask all the time. You get pretty dirty looks if you are not wearing a mask. Um, <laughs> which- I'll, I'll say from an from just an infection control standpoint, I don't know how much that's doing. I really get the distancing. Um, wearing a mask uh, like an N99 if you have an active cough and then, you know, not touching people and not touching surfaces, I totally get. But uh, right. I kind of understand the mask thing, but... Oh. Uh, so one of the docs actually explained it to me, and um, and I've also been reading up a lot um, in the last two weeks since I've really been ju- just dealing with COVID nineteen itself. Um, so some patient, uh, some people who have COVID nineteen have um, the virus just kind of silently, and they're probably able to spread it. And so the thing with masks are they probably don't protect you from people who are infected, but you reduce the spread of COVID-19 if you are wearing a mask. And so there's probably a lot of silent spreaders of this virus. And so it actually helps in that way that, you know, if everybody's wearing a mask, then fewer people are spreading it. So I think that that's the case. That's what it, what it's all about. And so people wearing N95 masks. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a, a waste of good resources um, for people who really need the protection, such as healthcare workers but say regular surgical masks and stuff like that probably reduce the spread of the virus um, from from people who are, you know, maybe mildly sick who don't realize that they have the disease um, in that case. So so that's kind of, I think, why people are wearing masks in Korea. That's That's entirely fair. And I do agree with you that kind of spread from inside out is reduced for at least a little while with the um, the kind of flimsy surgical masks, because as soon as they're moist, they're no longer barriers. Um, That's true. The N99s, the little, the stronger ones, if you're silently spreading, but you put the mask on, I, I will definitely agree with that, that that will slow down spread out to other people. I wonder what was the social distancing like? Were, are people still going out to restaurants? Are people still riding subways? It's pretty quiet. Um, there were certain days where we were there that uh, we didn't really see anybody. We'd go to a restaurant and we'd be the only people there. You'd go to <laughs> restaurants that clearly had you know, areas where there was usually a waiting line and they were completely empty. We were able to sit down, you know, first come, first serve. Um, 
and we would see there were certain days where we would see more people out and about but um but it's it's very you know people are taking it seriously just just as i think people are starting to take it seriously here in the u.s all these things that seem scary on the surface the fact that they've canceled sports they've canceled disneyland flights are being closed down countries are being locked all of which is very intimidating but really what you're seeing is the entire world coming together to uh, give doctors nurses and all healthcare professionals a real fighting chance against this disease and working together in a way we haven't seen the world unite since probably the last pandemic about a hundred years ago with the 1918 a few modes of comparison the first cases of say aids were described in 1981, and at that time, it took over two years to identify the virus causing the disease. Whereas with COVID-19, the first cases of pneumonia were reported in December of 2019, December 31st, and within a week, January 7th, the virus had already been identified with the full genome available on day 10. And we've linked to that genome in the show notes, and you can track some of the development as well as the spread of the disease. But this, although viruses live by mutating and they can be dangerous that way, the mutation rate on this particular virus, which is SARS-CoV-2, is not very high. And it's a pretty recent natural origin sometime between the end of November and beginning of December. So this is not an ancient virus rising back up. This is something that appeared (laughs) relatively recently. We identified it almost immediately and we mapped out its whole genome. Plus, it's not mutating a ton. So its likelihood of getting more severe than current, uh, separate from the numbers of people it's infecting, just any individual case becoming more severe through viral mutation is very low. So that's one good point in it. Well, so- I'll, I'll, I'll say um, I, I like analogies. This is it's, it's not a new thing. It's a spinoff, right? Like this is the Frasier of viruses. Because <laughs> everyone you know, has to be inside and reading, and not no. social, not at their local <laughs> yeah. bar where everyone knows their name. Well, and it we, happened in Seattle first, you know, <laughs> here in the United States, and which is oh, I love that analogy. Yeah, but yeah, Frasier just spun off. It came out of nowhere, and people were like, "Dude, I'm, I'm not gonna really like watch Frasier." And then everybody was watching Frasier. No, Santosh, yeah. Frasier had seven seasons or eight seasons. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. The last but three was terrible. <laughs> Uh, that's it's kind of where the analogy ends now um i will say one thing viral genomes and and this is an rna virus so it's a little bit more unstable than dna viruses are so more prone to mutation every time you get a random mutation you need to have selective pressure to keep it okay well when this thing is mutating all the time okay about 99 point whatever percent of those mutations are going to be least it's going to stop it from replicating it's going to stop it from being able to make its machinery that kind of a thing so there's a narrow set of parameters which allows this coronavirus to stay infective to humans and to replicate effectively right so that's why we're not seeing a ton a ton of change um, the other part is, you know, we haven't thrown a bunch of antivirals at it, so there's no selective. Problem. We're working on that. Oh, we're working on that hard. Yeah. <laughs> so I think right now um, it, it's a good reason that, you know, this particular spinoff is going to stay fairly stable, at least for the near term. And I'm talking like months. 
the disease causes mild symptoms in 81% of cases. Yes, in the other 14, it can cause severe pneumonia, and in 5%, it can be critical or fatal. We're not talking about, you know, different at-risk groups, things like that. Just for most people who get it, symptoms are mild. The danger is that those 81% of cases can rapidly overwhelm hospital and community resources. This can lead to delays in diagnosis, delays in treatment for a variety of conditions, not just coronavirus. If a hospital only has eight ICU beds and all of a sudden all eight of them are taken up with coronavirus, then we don't have those beds for people who have had you know, severe, massive heart attacks or who are septic or who are other things. So this is where the danger comes in is if even the mild, the sheer number of mild cases overwhelms the hospital response. That's why we want social distancing. We don't even want people getting these mild cases if possible, because that allows hospitals to better respond and treat to all the folks who are a little bit more severe. And countries where rapid aggressive response has been taken, such as Korea, such as Japan, such as after an initial poor start, China have really begun to see a decrease in the incidence of new cases compared to ones where they took it a little bit less seriously, like Italy or Spain, and they're seeing a rapid uptick in increases. So when social distancing is done right, it looks like an overreaction because nothing comes of it. It's only when you're not practicing it properly that you begin to see an exponential increase in new cases. Let me add a little bit to what Dr. Josh is saying in that 80-something percent of the people do not need to be admitted. Um, And hopefully those, they're not really the ones clogging up the hospital. However, the other 14% or so that who do need to be admitted need oxygen, need, um, some of them need ventilatory support. Uh, If you look at the numbers out of, on the Lancet, they published um, from data from Wuhan, they looked at 191 patients who were admitted uh, in the Wuhan Pulmonary Hospital, and 137 were discharged, but 54 died in the hospital. And uh, quite a bit of them, quite a large number of them needed um, intubations or at least supplemental oxygen. And that's what clogs up the hospitals. 14% of a million people can be a lot. 14% of 20 million, 30 million, that will absolutely overwhelm Dr. Josh. He uh, and, and myself in the ER. So, that <laughs> and when the 84, the 84% of people who are not that sick, when they show up to clinics and show up to ERs, that does take away the resources away from people who are having heart attacks, strokes, you know, bleeding from birth. That diverts some of our, some of our resources. And uh, that makes things tougher to take care of the super sick patients. And in fact, I think we're, you know, we're, I live in San Diego. We're not the, we're not the city that's so far most heavily affected by um, COVID-19. I think Seattle is, I think somebody dubbed it the Wuhan of the United States with, um, um, so we're not seeing that here yet, but we're already setting up tents, uh, rapid triage protocols because the numbers are jumping and just anecdote. Anecdotally, from my ED colleagues, they're seeing a lot of people who show up to the ER, the emergency department, ask, "Hey, do I have the coronavirus? I have a cough." Or, "Hey, do I have the coronavirus? I have no cough, but I, I, my cousin's second cousin had a cough and might have had uh, COVID nineteen. 
And this brings up a great point that uh, Jean mentioned earlier and Ward mentions the testing. Um, the U.S. response has been less than stellar, mm-hmm. uh, at least initially. And, you know, regardless of what side of the political aisle you fall down on, we're doing a poor job. However, I want to emphasize that getting tested for coronavirus, while important, is much more important from an epidemiological standpoint. Let's say you have the coronavirus and you rush out to get tested. The treatment is largely supportive, meaning if you have a mild case, as Dr. Ward described, we're going to say go home, socially distance, get fluids, rest, and, you know, take things for fever. If, however, you are short of breath, and you need supplemental oxygen or IV fluids, we're going to bring you in. But we would do that even if we didn't have a positive coronavirus test. So testing, while important, is not the magic end-all be-all that the news media is making it out to be. It's more for tracking how the virus is spreading, how people are being reinfected, and how fast it's moving. Uh, Is that an accurate description, John? Because you're a lot more involved with the research and testing of many diseases from all your Ebola work, I know. I, I would say that you're absolutely right, Josh. Um, you know, I think that the problem in the U.S. is that because we didn't have testing up um, and running as early as it should have been and um, as widespread as it should have been, I think that the coronavirus was spreading more than we realized, and that is part of the problem. But now that we're really taking more steps towards you know, enacting social distancing, canceling events, and so on and so forth. I think we're really, hopefully, we'll have a better handle on this pandemic, at least in the United States. But you're absolutely right. I don't think everybody needs to be tested or anything like that. It's just that it was a a kind of a critical miss at the beginning of of, um, this virus reaching the United States. If you meet specific requirements, you should get a test. But Otherwise, the testing is not going to change what we do, positive or negative. And basically, if you are sick, you should be at home, not, you know, spreading whatever illness it is that you have, whether or not it's COVID-19 or the flu or the cold or just a regular coronavirus cold at this point. It's still going on for sure. And I can can add that. Flu activity is still strong. You're absolutely right. Um, And I can tell you that that we're running out of, so the swabs can be, uh, we can sometimes use the same swab, depends on the kit, use the same swab for flu, RSV, the respiratory panel. We're running out of swabs for even flus. (laughs) So um, keep that in mind in terms of just how to allocate our resources to best serve our patients. Now, another thing to be positive about, all of the cases, mild, medium, whatever, a lot of people recover. Most of the data that you're seeing being reported is related to an increase in the number of confirmed cases, meaning a prevalence, how many new cases are appearing, how many existing cases are still going on, and all of that we're seeing a lot more of because testing has become more widely available. But even with most infected people, even high-risk ones like the elderly, the immunocompromised, the disabled, Most of those people are cured, and there's another map in the show notes that gives some of the actual numbers of infection and death rates, and there's 13 times more cured cases than deaths, and that number is slowly increasing. Is this an emergency? Do we need to act on it? Yes. Does every single person who get it have to fear a terrible outcome? No. 
Even better, symptoms are very mild in children, with only about 3% of worldwide cases in people under 20. Now, 3% of 6 billion people is still a lot, but Mm -hmm. 3% of cases in people are under 20, and mortality in the under 40 range is less than 0.2%. So what we're seeing is, again, it's the sheer number of people being infected that makes this such a concern. Individual cases, while they can be very severe, even in high-risk populations, are by and large getting better. And pets are not affected. Your dogs and your cats are safe. This was announced by the World Health Organization that they cannot pick up and carry the coronavirus. So at the risk of making a pun that I have loved hearing, who let the dogs out? Who let the dogs out? Woof, 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 woof. Oh, for the love of God. It's so bad. It's so horrible. (laughs) This is kind of the, it's the whole paradox of doing science with humans, right? Um, The scientists in us all want to know. We want information. And we always have to balance that against what good can we do with it? That's the thing. So in this case, if we had the kind of the firepower that South Korea had and they ramped up their test kits and they were able to do, you know, mass identification really quickly and still keep people apart and away from each other, um, then, yes, we would be able to find the same amount of information. We're a much bigger country. We're a much more diverse country. Our resources are split between things like counties and jurisdictions rather than being centralized the way that stuff is coming out of Seoul and to the rest of South Korea. Um, So we can't expect that. And I I was saddened, uh, I have to say, but I think we'll figure it out by the fact that we went into kind of like just consuming like we usually do. Let's just buy a bunch of stuff, whether it was toilet paper or hand sanitizer, rather than just kind of staying away from one another. We're at a point where food supply is fine. You know, Everybody who's doing wonderful things like farming and shipping food around, that infrastructure is staying in place. Information infrastructure is staying in place. So we can still get everything that we need. Um, You know, it's not going to break down Mad Max style. But if we can take a page from those countries and regions that have had successful outcomes, it's really that, you know, we can take a break and we can stay home for a while. And especially, you know, things where you can work from home, just work from home. And, you know, Jean, I I have this thing where... I, I like this overreaction to this virus for right now, but I really wish that this could be like an annual, like a flu vacation, you know what I mean? <laughs> Where, you know, it's just like, hey, you know, the flu's peaking. How about we all take a break, like a nice winter vacation and everyone right. kind of stays home and we get the same kind of outcome, but for the flu, we'd be a lot less than 16,000 deaths. You're, yeah, it's, you're not wrong. And <laughs> And maybe we'll learn something from this pandemic. I mean, I certainly hope so. I, heard, I certainly hope people will start getting vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, please. And Josh and I did this before, but please, everyone go get your flu shots um, and, you know, stop it anymore with the naysaying and what have you. Just it does protect you from severe infection, 
even if the overall efficacy is low, it does protect you, especially from flu A, which is the major killer. Um, and then, you know, our older patients, go get your PCV, your, your pneumococcal virus uh, vaccines, because that's the super infection that'll get you from flu. Santos, um, can you can you yeah. touch on the social distancing? I, I I hate the phrase social distancing. I want to call it physical <laughs> distancing because we're being social now. We're talking to each other. We're having a great time, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, like I I don't want people to feel socially isolated, but physically they should be distant. We should be distancing ourselves. What yeah. have what is the do you know what the CDC or WHO recommend in terms of physical distance? Is it still the six feet, three feet? Yeah, it's where yeah. like these giant dresses that <laughs> one <laughs> one car length war. <laughs> one car length. <laughs> Jean, um, no tailgating. <laughs> so right now, um, it, it's carried in what's called large respiratory droplets. So in public health, it, for infection, we have three major categories. One is called contact. That's the one where you know you wipe the snot or something, and then you touch someone with it, and that's it, that's how it moves person to person. Um, diarrheal illnesses are kind of famous for that. The next one is droplet, and this is uh, infections like flu, where the infectious particles are trapped in large liquid molecules when you cough or sneeze. And then they travel anywhere from about three to six feet and drop to the ground. So they don't travel long distances. And then the final category is called airborne. And a good example of airborne is tuberculosis, where even if you're breathing, the infectious particles can move a long distance on the air or breeze without dropping to the ground. So it can travel meters before you know your your kind of zone of infection is okay and those are the people who get put in negative pressure rooms so this thing is carried by contact if little kids are wiping snot and then by droplet if they cough or sneeze about three to six feet so right now in the hospital actually for cases that are not severe and we're not using aerosolizing things like intubation we just that's all we do is okay so jean has that worked staying about three to six feet apart or wearing a mask if you're coughing well i mean you know i think that places like china and korea um and japan have shown that it, it seems like it really does work people have been you know practicing social distancing canceling meetings and canceling schools and things like that where all of these germs are going to be passed um, as you're just closer to people. Churches and communities where you're closer to one another, you're just going to be passing these um, these bugs along. What have people be in Korea been doing in terms of, have you noticed anecdotally, you know, family members and um, people who are close, like who, who live together, for example, or who, who, or who work together? Right, right. People have uh, changed their behaviors. There are many people who have been tested, like I was saying. So if they have very mild symptoms, they might be wearing a mask or something until they get tested and then practice maybe more strict social distancing with their families. Actually, I would say, I, I think that there were probably plenty of people who, who kept their same you know, family traditions and ate together and things like that. You know, If you know that you're ill, obviously you have to change your, your, your habits, what, whatever, whatever the cause, like we were saying. Well, how did you eat? And how did you how did you eat? By the way, <laughs> well, so I ate. We ate in restaurants, and I, you know, I, I ate with my colleagues. So we were not socially distanced from each other. We were, you know, around the same table. But again, it was just four of us. That reducing large groups 
probably just reduces the amount of germs that you're exposed to. Let's talk about another one of the ones I know people are having a lot of fun with about on the internet, and that's, I can't touch my face when I'm with you. <laughs> it's like trying to tell people not to think of a pink elephant. You just I know. Can't. My it's, nose started itching as soon as you said that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's not your jet lag we we pushed hand washing we said you know the same thing that jean did if if you're sick you know stay three to six feet away from people stay home if you can um and wash your hands you know before you touch other surfaces or yourself like you're going to eat but i haven't been doing the don't touch your i just thing. rub my face all day long <laughs> See, I rub my face and then I wash my hands with my handy bottle of hand sanitizer. That's totally fine. Oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, that's I why think, I wear yeah. a mask. And <laughs> so <laughs> just so I, to remind myself, I'm gonna start wearing it like a holster. <laughs> the end result is, as long as you are practicing proper hand washing, you are free to touch your face as you feel the need. <laughs> But it <laughs> helps to avoid the spread. Yes. Minimize it as best you can. Absolutely. You did mention vaccines earlier. And while realistically, vaccines are probably not going to be available for this for the at the absolute earliest, somewhere between seven months to a year, some of the new approaches being taken are really impressive. And a couple I want to highlight. Uh, the University of Queensland, Australia team is working on a vaccine composed of synthetic viral proteins with a added stabilization domain called a molecular clamp. So they're basically tinker toying their way into building a fake version of the COVID-19 attachment protein. And then they hold it in place with this other new protein. So it doesn't, so it looks more attractive and more like the fusion one. So the idea is by holding the synthetic proteins in the confirmation that viral proteins maintain right before they merge with a cell, the molecular clamp allows for better recognition. This is something I haven't heard about at all before in terms of vaccine development. Are any of you familiar with this? No, that's um, that's new to me. Um, and I think a lot of the va the vaccines that we've been creating recently are are on the newer, you know, like using pretty novel uh, mechanisms and things like that. There's one that's actually starting at the NIH that is a messenger RNA um, vaccine, which oh, is also new to me as well. So it's basically a vaccine that hijacks, you know, nucleus to create proteins um, that are like the virus's protein so that then the person's immune system will react to it and hopefully be primed to react to the virus if and when, you know, if or when they're ever exposed to that virus. So that's kind of a cool thing. And they're actually starting the phase one uh, trial in Washington, I think now. That's for COVID. I think they are probably, um, you know, they do have vaccines like that for other other uh, infectious diseases, but I'm not really, I'm, I'm not really up to date on what they, the other I ones. can give you a little update on that. CureVac, a German pharmaceutical company based in Tübingen that also has offices in Boston, has also been working on developing messenger RNA-based vaccines, and they were already in the middle of a three-year, $34 million award to develop a messenger RNA printer capable of producing a bunch of doses in lipid nanoparticles. So in order to ramp up during this, during this time, 
they're doing things in parallel that normally scientists would do sequentially. So they've produced a whole bunch of different candidate vaccines that they'll be testing in mice soon, but they're also simultaneously making levels of a lot of those candidate vaccines of equality for clinical studies in humans. And they know that this is going to lead to some waste because some of these are going to have to be thrown out and will never be tested. But when they find the one that works well on mice, they can almost immediately shift into phase one clinical trials as early as the beginning of summer. Mice aren't the most beautiful human analog um, that we can be using for respiratory viruses, but they're good. Um, You can definitely use it for safety. Um, So, you know, you can feel pretty good about, excuse me, Um, you can feel pretty good about, you know, if you're not killing mice with it and it's protective, that if you treat humans with it, it'll be okay. And um, to, oh, yeah, yeah. sorry. To, to add on to that, um, so like you were saying, mice aren't great in a lot of vaccines, but um, because their immune systems aren't quite like humans. So at least in the NIH study, they're using humanized uh, mice where, um, you know, these <laughs> How mice do you humanize of- a mouse? Do you give it a Netflix <laughs> account? No, no, no. <laughs> she means putting human kind of parts into a mouse. Is this no, like the mouse no, no, that no. had the ear grow on its back? Like, what does it no, mean to no. have a humanized mouse? You blade its bone marrow, and then you can take a normal human's bone marrow and give it a transplant so that it's making human cells in terms of its white blood cells. idea of taking uh, an mRNA and then introducing it into a cell so that it can manufacture the proteins which become the antigens that the immune system fights against. Um, You actually have to look to cancer vaccines in order to find this stuff. And believe it or not, the RNA itself uh, also does become an antigen to some extent because, of course, the core of the virus is an RNA molecule. So, you know, the the killer cells, the, the T cells that try to attack do get trained in order to kill this thing. I'm also really, really heartened and happy to say that drug trials are ongoing, both with well-known antivirals around the world and uh, novel antivirals in order to stomp this thing out when it starts infecting. Um, I will say it's it's going to take time because we need to prove safety before efficacy. We never want to hurt somebody. Yeah, that's, that's really the main thing. But... I, Jean, I'm really, really heartened, just like you said, about the global response. Everybody's information sharing. There's no tight-lipped anything. And I think more so than COVID, I think that the fallout from this, meaning all these novel processes and the novel medications, we're going to have a lot of like kind of side-effecty benefits from innovating here. Absolutely. I mean, even just, you know, I see it at the NIH. We are um, starting up a randomized control trial for one of these newer antivirals called remdesivir, um, a placebo-controlled trial. You know, just like you were saying, uh, Santosh, we need to understand if the medication is safe to give. We think that it has some antiviral um, capacity against COVID-19, but we know that it also can cause side effects and things like that, and we don't know the long-term effects. So we need to make sure that what we're giving to people not only is effective, but is also safe to give to these people. So you can't really tell that unless you do a sound, a scientifically sound clinical trial. 
Um, and what we're doing is rolling this out in as many um, places as we can, including sites across the United States, but also um, in globally, uh, with Korea as the first site that we have up and running. We actually have two sites in Korea, and we've randomized our first patient um, just you know a day or two ago. Woohoo! <laughs> but it's you know it's it's really really important not to just randomly give medications willy nilly because oh yeah we just we don't know what what they might do. And there have been a couple of failures with that early on when we as human beings were kind of flailing at the very beginning. The a typical treatment for acute respiratory distress syndrome, and Josh, you can back me up on this, is corticosteroids. There's two things going on. The virus is invading and causing cell death. And then our immune system is going overboard and haywire and causing inflammation, which actually might be why kids are protected. Their immune systems just aren't as robust or certain arms of it anyway. Um, but it turns out that in this particular version, when you start getting to really sick people whose lungs are shutting down, you really shouldn't give corticosteroids like prednisone and unfortunately we learned that the hard way well prednisone yeah. core steroids have been uh, in fashion out of fashion in fashion out of fashion for as long yeah. as i can remember if you look at the critical care, care oh, in fashion for neurology sorry yeah. <laughs> in neurology, but in the in for septic patients that's just been a debate that's been going on for i think over a decade and i right. still don't apparently do we have data on um ARDS slash uh, respiratory failure patients with, with this SARS-2? Yeah, so right now, a lot of us are saying, um, you know, and this is really for healthcare workers and not for our general audience, but intubate early, meaning that if they start to get sick, don't wait, give them pressure support sooner rather than later. Because the problem with this is it lingers for about seven to eight days, and then people suddenly get sick in the second week. The other issue is that, yeah, yeah, well, no, no, but, and, and if you have to aerosolize stuff, you got to get them into negative pressure. So you have to have that available. So you have to put them in a, in a, a room where the air is sucked into the room rather than pushing out. Um, the other bit is so far, um, from early, not even studies from, you know, kind of anecdotes from patients who had received steroids, it looks like overall it makes things worse. So we should not use steroids when they're starting to go into respiratory failure. Almost certainly, it's that's a big no. And that may also be because it looks like some of the newer studies coming out showing a lot of the failure in the fatal cases is due to cardiac arrest ex that is caused by a complete collapse of the respiratory system. So yep. you can't, you can't, uh, well, you can oxygenate. Okay. You can't ventilate, meaning you can't get rid of carbon dioxide. And you know, if it builds up enough, it's going to shut down your organs, including your heart. Oh, speaking of novel things, can we talk about like the new things that are being popular now? Cause in China, the, what's been a lifesaver is for a lot of people is the no contact food delivery services. Oh. Those got super <laughs> popular. Yeah. <laughs> and here I feel like we're now we're doing new things because all my theater gigs have shut down. All the theaters, local theaters oh. have shut down here in uh, San Diego. Now they're doing, Oh, dude. Yeah. Wait, yeah. wait, don't tell me actually recorded in the Fox Theater in Atlanta to an empty room. Wow. Well, they, yeah, they, home they listeners, sent out the podcast. 
You guys are in luck because this is the perfect time to comb through the back catalog <laughs> of travel medicine podcasts. I never stop selling. You know what? They're like Gary Glenn Ross over here. Travel medicine podcast has been podcasting to a zero audience since day one. Yeah, we've been doing it since before it was cool, and now there's at least six thousand of you out there, and we love you so much, and we want you to stay well. And this is a great time to recommend podcasts to people, specifically ours. Uh, are there any other important things you guys want to touch on about this coronavirus? No nothing. Oh, you're right. Are there any other things? Are there? <laughs> I want to give a plug to telemedicine. So if you are if you are having symptoms that are mild, you're not having any emergency urgencies, you're not short of breath, you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I can't get out of bed, I can barely walk around, take advantage of telemedicine options. Um, that's what some some hospitals are doing to help you decide where you need to go. And that's a wonderful resource that we should consider. And that actually is, I think with this pandemic, is pushing telemedicine to a new spotlight. Yeah. We're going to see a lot of advancements in telemedicine in the next several months. Definitely. And I think it's a, I think it's a really good thing. In fact, they have, they have, um, they have units now that are almost kind of like, you know how iPhones have um, iPhone health and Samsung health. They have units now where doctors can give patient a unit at home and they, the patients can put it on their heart, on their lungs, put it in their ears, look in their throats, and the doctor through the, through the program can listen to lungs, listen to your heart, look at your throat, look inside your ears, and look at you know whatever rashes you have. Wow. So things are all coming down the pipeline. That's pretty cool. Training, you know, I just got training like last week. <laughs> I mean, well, you probably do a neurologic exam with telemedicine, so that's why I've always, you know, thought it's, uh, you know, thought it, it, it it's a really good idea. But um, but with all of these advances, I mean, what can't you do? You can't touch oh, your you face. Can't, you can't touch your face. No. No touching. No, <laughs> no you can. <laughs> you can touch your face, and then if you're going wash to touch your... something else, wash your wash your hands to get rid of corona. The alcohol rubs on the buy um, should be right at 70%. Um, they shouldn't be more than that, actually. You do need about 30% water in order for the alcohol rubs to be properly active. Uh, things that I'm will actually, not help. Cocaine. Yeah, well, things that will... <laughs> bleach. No. Ultraviolet oh. light. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that our audience is smarter than that, but you're right. Um, sp oh, uh, I will say, please don't go quote unquote spreading it because I might as well get it and get it over with. Oh, please don't. Hell no. I've seen that quite a bit. Absolutely not. Um, and uh, the homemade alcohol rubs with whatever coconut and tea tree oil, um, zero. Um, and then, you know, if you're asymptomatic or if you're mildly symptomatic, um, just please don't go searching for testing. It's okay if you don't know and if you get a little bit ill and if you stay at home and then get better. Okay. It's way better than going to a crowded ER. So one other thing I wanted to just make a plug for really quickly is that even though you are socially distancing yourself and not seeing other people, please do stay interactive with your social network. 
um, you know, just because you're technically alone doesn't mean you have to be lonely. This is a great time for those of you who want to use uh, services like FaceTime or Rabbit or Roll20. You know, play board games online with your friends. Reach out and start using your smartphone to make phone calls again. This is phone when, calls? What the hell is that? This is when we can see, hopefully, it's a positive effect from social media as we all physically distance ourselves. Yeah, well, I mean, just real quick, Jean, the thing that you text with, you talk into it. Oh, seriously? You do that? <laughs> That's the, so wow. the little computer in your hand. Yeah, you use the, there's a little icon in it that looks like, a, you know, something from the 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a phone with a PH. It's spelled with a PH. <laughs> So Facebook will bring back the poke again. <laughs> Get the poke. No touching. Do you, no. <laughs> Do you guys remember the little sprint? Like it had the walkie-talkie feature. <laughs> that thing. Oh, I'd love to see wow. that come back. <laughs> so uh, we'd love to hear your suggestions on how you're keeping yourself occupied while self-quarantined or working from home or isolated. Um, again, it's okay not to know. It's okay to be a little bit sick. But let's let me ask: Who are the people, Ward, as an ER physician? Who do you think should be coming in to see you? Well, if you're if you're having shortness of breath with just walking around the house, if you're um, if you have comorbidities, give your doctor a call. If you have an emergency, call nine one one. If you have anything that you think is a life-threatening, limb-threatening situation, do not hesitate to come to the ER. This is not, uh, doctors are happy to see you under all circumstances. But, you know, if you just have a slight cough, a slight, slight sniffle, maybe you should call your doctor first and then have a phone appointment or a chat and get some home care and uh, use good judgment. Yeah, so and we're no going to take, and no touching. We're going to take care of you guys no matter what. But remember, it's okay to be concerned you don't need to be panicked. And we will continue to give sporadic update episodes on coronavirus as more information comes out in between all our usual goofing off and happy good times. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to a whole bunch of resources used to research this episode and some very calming visual graphs. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and all our co-hosts. And until next time, you guys, stay safe out there and happy travels. Bye, and you're catching. <laughs> up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.